Chapter Three, Part One of A Little Brother to the Bear by William J. Long. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maggie Travers. Chapter Three, Widowick the Hermit, Part One. Widowick the Woodcock, the strangest hermit in all the woods, is a bird of mystery. Only the hunters know anything about him and they know him chiefly as a glorious bird that flashes up to the outer tops with a surprised twitter before their dogs, and poises there a moment on whirling wings to get his bearings, and then from his vantage point at the moment of his exultation he either falls down dead at the bang of their guns and the rip of shot through the screen of leaves, or else happily he slants swiftly down to another hiding-place among the alders. To the hunters, who are practically his only human acquaintances, he is a game-bird pure and simple, and their interest is chiefly in his death. The details of his daily life he hides from them, and from all others, in the dark woods where he spends all the sunny hours, and in the soft twilight when he stirs abroad, like an owl, after his long day's rest. Of a hundred farmers on whose lands I have found wood a week, or the signs of his recent feeding, scarcely five knew from observation that such a bird existed so well does he play the hermit under our very noses the reasons for this are many by day he rests on the ground in some dark bit of cover by a brown stump that exactly matches his feathers or in a tangle of dead leaves and breaks where it is almost impossible to see him at such times his strange fearlessness of man helps to hide him for he will let you pass within a few feet of him without stirring. That is partly because he sees poorly by day, and perhaps does not realize how near you are, and partly because he knows that his soft colors hide him so well, admits his surroundings that you cannot see him, however near you come. This confidence of his is well placed, for once I saw a man step over a brooding woodcock on her nest in the roots of an old stump without seeing her and she never moved so much as the tip of her long bill as he passed. In the late twilight, when woodcock first stir abroad, you see only a shadow passing swiftly across a bit of clear sky, as Woodaweek goes off to the meadow brook to feed, or hear a rustle in the alders as he turns the dead leaves over, and a faint pionk like the voice of a distant nighthawk, and then you catch a glimpse of a shadow that flits along the ground, or a weaving, bat-like flutter of wings as you draw near to investigate. No wonder, under such circumstances, that Woodaweek passes all his summers and raises brood upon brood of downy, invisible chicks in a farmer's woodlot without ever being found out or recognized. My own acquaintance with Woodaweek began when I was a child, when I had no name to give the strange bird that I watched day after day, and when those whom I asked for information laughed at my description, and said no such bird existed. It was just beyond the upland pasture where the famous old beech partridge lived. On the northern slopes were some dark, wet maple woods, and beyond that the ground slanted away through scrub and alders to a little wild meadow where cowslips grew beside the brook. One April day, in stealing through the maple woods, I stopped suddenly at seeing something shining like a jewel almost at my feet. It was an eye, a bird's eye, but it was some moments before I could realize 
that it was really a bird sitting there on her nest between the broken ends of an old stub that had fallen years ago. I backed away quietly and knelt down to watch the queer find. Her bill was enormously long and straight, and her eyes were way up at the back of her head. That was the first observation. Some wandering horse had put his hoof down and made a hollow in the dry rotten wood of the fallen stub. Into this hollow a few leaves and brown grass stems had been gathered, a careless kind of nest, yet serving its purpose wonderfully, for it hid the brooding mother so well that one might step on her without ever knowing that bird or nest was near. This was the second wandering observation, as I made out the soft outlines of the bird sitting there, apparently without a thought of fear, within ten feet of my face. I went away quietly that day and left her undisturbed, and I remember perfectly that I took with me something of the wonder, and something too of the fear, with which a child naturally meets the wild things for the first time. That she should be so still and fearless before me was a perfect argument to a child that she had some hidden means of defense, the long bill, perhaps, or a hidden sting, with which it was not well to trifle. All that seems very strange and far away to me now, but it was real enough then to a very small boy, alone in the dark woods, who met for the first time a large bird with an enormously long bill and eyes way up on the back of her head, where they plainly did not belong, to a bird, moreover, that had no fear, and seemed perfectly well to be able to take care of herself. So I went away softly and wondered about it. Next day I came back again. The strange bird was there on her nest as before, her long bill resting over the edge of the hollow and looking like a twig at first glance. She showed no fear whatever, and encouraged at her quietness and assurance, I crept nearer and near till I touched her bill with my finger and turned it gently aside. At this she wiggled it impatiently, and my first child's observation was one that has only recently been noticed by naturalists, namely that the tip of the upper bill is flexible and can be moved about almost like the tip of a finger in order to find the food that lies deep in the mud and seize it and drag it out of its hiding. At the same time, she uttered a curious hissing sound that frightened me again and made me think of snakes and hidden stings, so I drew back and watched her from a safe distance. She sat, for the most part, perfectly motionless, the only movement being an occasional turning of the long bill, and once, when she had been still a very long time, I turned her head aside again, and to my astonishment and delight she made no objection but left her head as I had turned it, and presently she let me twist it back again. After her first warning she seemed to understand the situation perfectly, and had no concern for the wandering child that watched her, and that had no intention whatever of harming her or her nest. Others had laughed at my description of a brown bird with a long bill and eyes at the back of her head that let you touch her on her nest, so I said no more to them but at the first opportunity I hunted up Natty Dingle and told him all about it. Natty was a gentle, harmless, improvident little man who would never do any hard work for pay. It gave him cricks in his back, he said. 
but would cheerfully half kill himself to go fishing through the ice, or to oblige a neighbor. So far as he earned a living, he did it by shooting and fishing and trapping and picking berries in their several seasons, and by gathering dandelions and cowslips, cuslops he called them, in the spring and peddling them good-naturedly from door to door. Most of his time in pleasant weather he spent in roaming about the woods, or lying on his back by the pond shore where the woods were thickest, fishing lazily and catching fish where no one else could ever get them, or watching an otter's den on a stream where no one else had seen an otter for forty years. He knew all about the woods, knew every bird and beast and plant, and one boy at least, to my knowledge, would rather go with him for a day's fishing than see the president's train or go to a circus. Unlike the others, Natty did not laugh at my description, but listened patiently and told me I had found a woodcock's nest, a rare thing, he said, for though he had roamed the woods so much and shot hundreds of the birds in season, he had never yet chanced upon a nest. Next day he went with me to see the eggs, he said, but as I think of it now, it was probably with a view of locating the brood accurately for the August shooting. As we rounded the end of the fallen stub, the woodcock's confidence deserted her at sight of the stranger, and she slipped away noiselessly into the leafy shadows. Then we saw her four eggs, very big at one end, very little at the other, and beautifully colored and spotted. Natty, who was wise in his way, merely glanced at the nest and then drew me aside into hiding, and before we knew it, or had even seen her approach, Mother Woodcock was brooding her eggs again. Then Natty, who had doubted one part of my story, whispered to me to go out, and the bird never stirred as I crept near on hands and knees and touched her as before. A few minutes later we crept away softly, and Natty took me to the swamp to show me the borings, telling me on the way of the woodcock's habits as he had seen them in the fall hunting. The borings we found in plenty, wherever the earth was soft, numerous holes, as if made with a pencil, where the woodcock had probed the earth with her long bill. She was hunting for earthworms, Natty told me, a queer mistake of his, and of all the bird books as well, for in the primitive alder woods and swamps where the borings are so often seen, there are no earthworms, but only slugs and soft beetles and delicate white grubs. Woodcock hunt by scent and feeling, and also by listening for the slight sounds made by the worms underground, he told me, and that is why the eyes are far back on the head, to be out of the way, and also to watch for danger above and behind, while the bird's bill is deep in the mud. And that also explains why the tip of the bill is flexible, so that when the bird bores in the earth and has failed to locate the game accurately by hearing, the sensitive tip of the bill feels around, like a finger, until it finds and seizes the morsel. All this and many things more he told me as we searched through the swamp for the signs of Mother Woodcock's hunting and made our way home together in the twilight. Some things were true, some erroneous, and some were a curious blending of accurate traditions and imaginative folklore from some unknown source, such as is still held as knowledge of birds and beasts in all country places, and these were the most interesting of all to a child 
and the boy listened, as a devotee listens to a great sacred concert, and remembered all these things, and afterward sifted them, and found out for himself what things were true. When I went back to the spot a few days later, the nest was deserted. A few bits of shell scattered about told me the story, and that I must now hunt for the little woodcocks, which are almost impossible to find unless the mother herself shows you where they are. A week later, as I prowled along the edge of the swamp, a sudden little brown whirlwind seemed to roll up the leaves at my feet. In the midst of it I made out the woodcock fluttering away, clucking and trailing, now a wing and now a leg, as if desperately hurt. Of course I followed her to see what was the matter, forgetting the partridge that had once played me the same pretty trick to decoy me away from her chicks. When she had led me to a safe distance, all her injuries vanished as at the touch of magic. She sprang up on strong wings, rolled across the swamp, and circled swiftly back to where I had first startled her. But I did not find one of the little woodcocks, though I hunted for them half an hour, and there were four of them, probably, hiding among the leaves and grass stems under my very eyes. The wonderful knowledge gleaned from Natty Dingle's store and from the borings in the swamp brought me into trouble and conflict a few weeks later. Not far from me lived a neighbor's boy, a budding naturalist, who had a big yellow cat named Blink at his house. A queer old cat was Blink, and the greatest hunter I ever saw. He knew, for instance, where a mole could be found in his long tunnel, and that is something that still puzzles me, and caught scores of them. But, like most cats, he could never be induced to taste one. When he caught a mole and was hungry, he would hide it and go off to catch a mouse or a bird, and these he would eat, leaving the mole to be brought home as game. He would hunt by himself for hours at a time and come meowing home, bringing everything he caught, rats, squirrels, rabbits, quail, grouse, and even grasshoppers when no bigger game was afoot. At a distance we would hear his call, a peculiar meow, meow, that he gave only when he had caught something, and the boy would run out to meet him and take his game, while Blink purred and rubbed against his legs to show his pride and satisfaction. When no one met him, he would go meowing around the house once or twice, and then put his game under the doorstep, where our noses must speedily call it to our attention, for Blink would never touch it again. One day the boy found a strange bird under the doorstep, a beautiful brown creature, as large as a pigeon, with a long, straight bill and eyes at the top of its head. He took it to his father, a dogmatic man who gave him a queer mixture of truth and nonsense as his portion of natural history. It was a blind snipe, he said, and there was some truth in that. It couldn't see because its eyes were out of place. It was a very scarce bird that appeared occasionally in the fall, and that burrowed in the mud for the winter, instead of migrating. And all this was chiefly nonsense. When the boy took me to see his queer find, I called it a woodcock, and began to tell about it eagerly, but was stopped short and called a liar for my pains. A wordy war followed, in which Natty Dingle's authority was invoked in vain, and the boy— being bigger than I and in his own yard, 
drove me away at last for daring to tell him about a bird that his own cat had caught, and that his own father had called a blind snipe. He pegged one extra stone after me for saying that there were plenty of them about, only they fed by night like owls, and another stone for shouting back that they did not burrow in the mud like turtles in dry weather, as his oracle had declared. And this untempted zeal is very much like what one generally encounters when he runs up against the prejudices of naturalists anywhere. Here all they say, that the earth is flat, the swallows spend the winter in the mud, that animals are governed wholly by instinct, but don't quote any facts you may have seen until the world is ready for them. For it is better to call a thing a blind snipe and no better than to raise a family row and be hit on the head with a stone for calling it a woodcock. The little woodcocks, though scarcely bigger than bumblebees, ran about heartily, like young partridges, the moment they chipped the shell and began at once to learn from the mother where to look for food. In the early twilight, when they are less wild, and the mother is not so quick to flutter away and draw you after her, I have sometimes surprised a brood of them, wee, downy, invisible things, each with a comically long bill and a stripe down his back that seems to divide the little fellow and hide one half of him ever after you have discovered the other. The mother is with them and leads them swiftly among the bogs and ferns and alder stems, where they go about turning over the dead leaves and twigs and shreds of wet bark with their bills for the grubs that hide beneath, like a family of rag-pickers, each with a little stick to turn things over. Mother and chicks have a contented little twitter at such times that I have never heard under any other circumstances, which is probably intended to encourage each other and keep all the family within hearing as they run about in the twilight. When the feeding grounds are far away from the nest, as is often the case, Widowweek has two habits that are not found, I think, in any other game birds, except perhaps the plover, and I have never been able to watch the young of these birds, though every new observation of the old one serves to convince me that they are the most remarkable birds that visit us, and the least understood. When food must be hunted for at a long distance, the mother will leave her brood in hiding and go herself to fetch it. When she returns, she feeds the chicks, like a mother dove, by putting her bill in their throats and giving each his portion, going and coming until they are satisfied, when she leaves them in hiding again and feeds for herself during the rest of the night. Like most other young birds and animals, when left thus by their mothers, they never leave the spot where they have been told to stay and can hardly be driven away from it until the mother returns. And generally, when you find a brood of young woodcock without the mother, they will let you pick them up and will lie as if dead in your hand, playing possum until you put them down again. When there is a good feeding ground near at hand, yet too far for the little chicks to travel, the mother will take them there, one by one, and hide them in a secret spot until she has brought the whole family. Two or three times I have seen woodcock fly away with their young, and once I saw a mother return to the spot from which, a few moments before, she had flown away with a chick and take another one from under a leaf where I had not seen him. 
This curious method is used by the mothers not only to take the young to favorable feeding grounds, but also to get them quickly out of the way when sudden danger threatens, like fire or flood, from which it is impossible to hide. So far as I can judge the process, which is always quickly done and extremely difficult to follow, the mother lights or walks directly over the chick and holds him between her knees as she flies. This is the way it seems to me after seeing it several times. There are those, and they are hunters and keen observers, who claim that the mother carries them in her bill as a cat carries a kitten. But how that is possible without choking the little fellows is to me incomprehensible. The bill is not strong enough at the tip, I think, to hold them by a wing, and to grasp them by the neck, as in a pair of shears, and so to carry them, would, it seems to me, most certainly suffocate or injure them in any prolonged flight, and that is not the way in which wild mothers generally handle their little ones. There is another possible way in which Widowweek may carry her young, though I have never seen it. An old hunter and keen observer of wildlife, with whom I sometimes roam the woods, once stumbled upon a mother woodcock and her brood by a little brook at the foot of a wild hillside. One of the chicks was resting upon the mother's back, just as one often sees a domestic chicken. At my friend's sudden approach, the mother rose, taking the chick with her on her back, and vanished among the thick leaves. The rest of the brood, three of them, disappeared instantly, and the man, after finding one of them, went on his way without waiting to see whether the mother returned for the rest. I give the incident for what it is worth as a possible suggestion as to the way in which young woodcock are carried to and fro, but I am quite sure that those that have come under my own observation were carried by an entirely different method. End of chapter 3, part 1 Recording by Maggie Travers in Murfreesboro, Tennessee